I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics Podcast in the Times. I'm Matt Chorley. It will be an in-out referendum. Welcome to a new Britain. 1,318 days after the UK voted to leave the EU. It is finally happening. Whatever your decision, I will do my best to deliver it. How did we get here? And were all of the warnings and predictions right? In this special episode, I'm joined by Tim Shipman, political editor of the Sunday Times, who also joined me on the morning of Friday, June the 24th, 2016. The British people have voted to leave the European Union. Back then, tired, drunk, hungover, or possibly a combination of all three, we tried to make sense of the result, which seemed to have caught even the victors by surprise. Britain has voted to leave the European Union. Just digest that for a moment. Whether you're in favour or against, few people actually thought it would happen. But from an opinion poll last night declaring that Remain would win at 10 o'clock to Britain backing Brexit by four in the morning with 51.8% of the vote, uh, it's been quite a night. So, Tim, how it, both of us have revisited the podcast we did back then. How do you remember that night and the morning after? Well, I remember the high drama of it. I remember first being at a party with Nigel Farage telling us he'd lost um, and a sort of mad rolling mall like a rugby game with hundreds of hacks and a very sweaty Farage. Um, I remember leaving the party, trying to find some other people and hearing the result from Sunderland and thinking, this ain't what we thought it was going to be. And I remember the next morning with my wife who had been on the Remain campaign not best pleased by the result, and getting, I think, 45 minutes sleep before going off to the Boris Johnson and Michael Gove press conference, at which, in the immortal words of Ruth Davidson, they looked like a couple of teenage arsonists who'd been caught with the matches. (laughs) It was really um, striking, I think, because so often, at least up until that point in politics, most of the time the expected thing happened. The 2015 election result was a bit of a surprise, but... David Cameron remaining in number 10 wasn't that sort of big shock. Nobody really expected. Now, of course, everyone claims that they knew that Leave were going to win. But well, no. I put money on it. That's all I can say. But I didn't predict it in print. <laughs> <laughs> and so that pays your money and you take. And that's the crucial thing. So I remember, I think it was about midday we recorded the podcast. So quite a lot had gone on by that point. I'd been in the office in the Times in London Bridge, and then I went to Downing Street. The sun was... I remember it was, it was quite sunny. It was, it was crisp and clear. Crisp it was and a clear. little bit like Blair winning in 97. Yeah, there but was the a opposite. slight sense of a new dawn, but it was not the dawn no. that people expect. So, and I remember standing there for ages and ages and ages in Downing Street, and eventually David Cameron came out. But the British people have made a very clear decision to take a different path. And as such, I think the country requires fresh leadership to take it in this direction. 
I will do everything I can as Prime Minister to steady the ship over the coming weeks and months. But I do not think it would be right for me to try to be the captain that steers our country to its next destination. This is not a decision I've taken lightly, but I do believe it's in the national interest to have a period of stability and then the new leadership required. There is no need for a precise timetable today, but in my view, we should aim to have a new prime minister in place by the start of the Conservative Party conference in October. Do you think with hindsight, he was right to quit so quickly? I think his judgment was probably better than a lot of the people around him, which was that it was an untenable position uh, for a chap who had argued quite so vociferously for Remain to then say, I'll be the one that delivers the result to leave. And I think, frankly, if you look at how things panned out with Theresa May for three more years, I think David Cameron's judgment was pretty sound on that. Theresa May virtually sat out the referendum, then became a sort of over-the-top, I will deliver this uh, uh, referendum at all costs. Brexit means Brexit. In the end, of course, she didn't deliver the Brexit that the Brexiteers wanted. You know, she certainly tried to look like she meant it at the start. And it was only just possible for her to keep things, uh, the show on the road for that long, because she was prepared to say that she was going to deliver it in spades. And I don't think Cameron would have been able to do that. And I think while there were some people around him who were saying, don't do it, I think he worked out pretty early that that was untenable. I think he was probably right. And probably the people around him saying, don't quit just yet, did have a vested interest in well, as ever. Staying in number 10 for a bit longer. Yeah, quite. I mean, the Cameroons who wanted to stay wanted to stay because their jobs depended on it. And I think there's an argument that looking forwards, um, some of the actions that the May government took were as much about preserving the May government as they were about delivering Brexit in a particular way. Uh, and that arguably kept things ticking over in a slightly desultory fashion longer than they might have done. Things might have been brought to a head rather earlier if that sort of survival instinct of some of the people around her hadn't been quite so strong. Back then, it felt like this is going to define David Cameron totally responsible for what some viewed as a disastrous mess. Do you think three years on that's changed? Well, I think David Cameron knew the second that result was in, that the first line of his obituary would be the thing that he didn't want it to be. The question that hangs over it is whether that process also involves a breakup of the United Kingdom, you know, United Ireland, Scotland leaving, all sorts of things could happen. I mean, David Cameron uh, himself tells the joke you know people say to him David how are you do you sleep at night and he says yes I sleep like a baby I wake at three o'clock in the morning screaming for my mother Um, (laughs) and that was his way of publicly dealing with the first line of that obituary over the last three years my understanding is that in recent weeks he has come to see that you know he feels slightly less sick about it Boris Johnson's success in the general election has meant that Cameron the moment is not the trigger point for the collapse of the Conservative Party Jeremy Corbyn in Downing Street may yet be the collapse of the union and economic problems going ahead. But for now, I think he's a little bit more sanguine than he was sort of a year ago. The longer that time goes on, if a version of Brexit leads to a form of economic recession or whatever, ultimately that will be blamed on Boris Johnson if he's Prime Minister then. There are lots of other people who, who now take responsibility for what's unfolded since. Yes, I think that's right, though um, some people will always blame David Cameron for that, uh, and he knows that. But at the same time, if things are not the disaster and that actually Britain does... F- find a new sort of place in the world as an economy that keeps ticking over, then Cameron will probably in a few years' time start boasting that he made this possible. You know, the history of Brexit is going to depend entirely on when you're writing it. Um, (laughs) Because if you wrote it three months after, that looks different from a year after, looks different from three years after. We don't know what the story of Brexit will be in 10 or 30 years' time. And they'll both look slightly different from what it looks like now. 
Of course, immediately after the David Cameron announced he was quitting, we knew there was going to be a Tory leadership contest. And at that point, we thought we knew who it was going to be. Everybody knows Boris is running. And what this contest basically boils down to is, you know, is the Boris camp bigger than the stop Boris camp? People who don't like Boris Johnson and can just about stomach a safe pair of hands grown up are going to be lining up behind Theresa May. So you were right on that. In the end, they went for the safe pair of hands of Theresa May as the stop Boris camp turned out to be bigger. Well, the stop Boris camp turned out to be Michael Gove, which was the most significant (laughs) part of it. When the stop Boris camp is led by your own campaign manager, that is liable to derail things. Though I think there's an interesting history here. There was a debate in Boris Johnson's team when Michael Gove knifed him about whether or not he should stay in that race. And Linton Crosby basically won the day and said, you know, we pull you out and we save you for another day. And Theresa May at that point was sort of guaranteed victory. And there are various points along this uh, historical timeline in the last three or four years where Boris Johnson made decisions. One of them was to pull out at that point. That now looks relatively clever. He got a big job off the back of it, didn't do it terribly well. But at the same time, he then was in a position to live to fight again. He then resigned. That was another big decision. And both of those taken together have put him in a position where he was at least able to come back and do what he's done. Do you think that had he become leader in 2016, he could have done what he has done now? Did the country or politics need to go through three years of Theresa May chaos? I'm tempted to say that the answer to that will be in my next book, Matt. (laughs) Um, And it's one I'm still sort of conjuring with. I think a plausible argument that things would have been quicker, more brutal, but simpler and cleaner if Boris Johnson had taken over in 2016. But would we have got quite the same deal? I think that's rather doubtful. And speaking to people in Brussels and people in the government, there is at least an argument that Boris Johnson was able to succeed because Theresa May had failed so spectacularly in almost every conceivable way. (laughs) And it's a bit like that sort of Sherlock Holmes thing where he says, you know, once all the uh, impossible courses of action have been closed off, what remains, you know, must be the answer to the problem. And in a sense, where we've ended up is a situation where Theresa May had closed off all the other avenues, alienated every single group, and Boris Johnson was sort of left with the one thing uh, that he and Brussels could agree on. It's hardly possible that actually in 2016, had Boris Johnson won, he'd have behaved in the same way that team mate. I mean, as we've seen, you know, actually, some of Dominic Cummings' big decisions have been quite similar to the Nick Timothy Fiona Hill. We're in charge now, we can do what we like, but actually with a much smaller majority back in 2016. And instead of alienating Remainers, which is what Theresa May did, while trying to prove herself to be a lever, it's possible that Boris Johnson could have alienated some levers while trying to prove that, you know, try to win over the Remainers. The same problem would have happened. He may well, I suppose he could have had then the 2017 general election and done better than Theresa May did. Well, it seems to me inevitable that he would have done slightly better than Theresa yeah. May. But yes, I think the argument's a good one. If you'd alienated the other side of the party, he might have then pivoted to a softer Brexit rather than get, getting harder as we went on. A lot of people in Brussels just think it w- wouldn't have been plausible to, to offer him what they ended up offering him. You had to have shown that everything else had failed. And the point you make about Cummings is a good one. Uh, I always wondered at the time what would happen if he went in. And there was a good case that he'd have been gone by Christmas of 2016 in a sort of massive flame-up. And in a world where they had a majority of under 20, then he would have had far less power and far less ability to dictate. Before we move on and go back to the podcast, do you think Dominic Cummings survives to Christmas 2020? His plan is to survive not much longer than that anyway. I think if you look at those adverts he put in place, they were sort of, make me redundant within a year. Uh, now, it may be that he goes on slightly longer than that. I think his productive time at education was about two years. He probably is still there at Christmas, but I think we'll by then be writing stories about uh, how long he does stay and what he does next. Well, let's talk about his old boss. You touched on him slightly. I want to talk about Michael Gove. 
uh, as you mentioned, the morning after the result was announced, you went to that Vote Leave press conference and you described quite colourfully the man who you thought appeared quite troubled. Michael Gove stood up and looked like he'd just shot his own brother. This is the Notting Hill set torn asunder. And Michael Gove, frankly, looked pretty shocked this morning. He, he looked like a guy who was sort of thinking to himself, what on earth have I done? Perhaps more than anyone else, maybe with the exception of Boris Johnson, Michael Gove has had an amazing roller coaster since, given that he was the sort of co-frontman of the Vote Leave campaign. He was sat by Theresa May and then brought back. And now he seems to be essentially Deputy Prime Minister in all but name under the man whose leadership campaign he destroyed in 2016. If anyone ever wants to do a one-man play about all of this, it would have to be about Michael Gove, not about anybody else. There's an argument that if he doesn't back leave, Boris Johnson finds it more difficult. Um, If they had not done it, there's a good chance leave wouldn't have won. He then backed Boris Johnson rather than running himself or supporting somebody else. Then he knifed him. All of that changed the course of British history. He might now argue that that was doing Johnson a favour and putting him in a position to triumph later. Um, I'm sure he's tried to make that argument. Well, indeed. <laughs> and don't forget the one thing I think you probably missed out there was that post the Chequers deal in the summer of 2018, Gove propped up Theresa May. People amongst them, Dominic Cummings, begged him to resign over Chequers and over the, the deal in uh, November. He didn't. So having finished the careers of David Cameron and then Boris Johnson, he then decided he was not going to finish the career of Theresa May, who, if you'd asked him three years earlier which career he wanted to end, it would have been that one. So it, the great sort of ironies of British politics that he propped her up. Only for, slightly from a distance, because he famously didn't take the Brexit secretary job. No. Well, he, he was willing he, he to pop her up, but from death. Well, he wanted more power uh, to go and renegotiate the deal, and he wasn't given it. But if you talk to the Spartans in the Tory party, who are now putting magazine articles out there saying, this has only been a success because of our truculence and our determination to dig in and ensure that you know a bad soft deal was not done. Michael Gove is one of the villains because they prevented... He prevented uh, you know, what they wanted to see all along and delayed it for months and months and months. So he's a sort of pivotal figure to all of this. He appears to be uh, in a psychologically good position at the moment, but I imagine along the way it's been quite the emotional ride. And his wife, Sarah Vine's written in the mail this week about how grim she's found the whole process. Yeah, they've had you know stuff pelted at the windows, they've lost friends, they've been abused on social media, uh, their kids have been dragged into it, it's not been much fun. But I think probably quite a lot of people in the political village would say that the whole experience has been a relatively traumatic one. A lot of people have fallen out, a lot of people have, at one stage, I mean, let's be frank, lots of people seem to be going slightly mad. Um, <laughs> it's all calmed down a little bit now, but, but emotions have run high. You know, it's been a most bizarre combination of labyrinthine, clever sort of intellectual pursuits in terms of what the government's been up to, what people have done in Parliament, and yet a sort of baying mob of emotion as well. It's a strange combination, Brexit. It's got a bit of everything. It has. Let's talk about another one of the characters in it. Nigel Farage. Right back on that morning after, we were reflecting on Nigel Farage. You said he'd gone from conceding defeat to celebrating in a few short hours. But he's done it twice more since. (laughs) (laughs) Let's just remind us of what we thought might then lie ahead for Nigel Farage and what was then UKIP. The thing for Farage, there is an opportunity for him. If you go back to the general election, UKIP finished second in 40 or 50 Labour seats in the north of England. They have basically turned those people into, you know, sort of effective UKIP voters by getting to to back Brexit. Nigel Farage now needs to show that he can run that party as something that can go and take advantage of that and become maybe a a third force like the Lib Dems used to be in British politics. So we didn't quite get that right, did we? Or at least Nigel Farage didn't quite manage to pull it off. Well, we got the concept right, but it was Boris Johnson that did it, not Nigel. 
Nigel Farage <laughs> at the end. Though in the spring of 2019, it could easily still have been Nigel Farage. But with the Brexit Party. Yeah, I yeah. mean, the Brexit Party came in. They romped a victory in the European elections. The Conservative Party, at that point, let us not forget, the dominant force of government in the Western world scored 9%, which is its lowest performance in any meaningful election. They were on the verge of obliteration at that point. And, and endless pieces, which I'm sure you and I both wrote at the time. The Tories will never win again. They, how will they survive as a political force? Well, I like to think I didn't write one of those pieces because I've always <laughs> thought those pieces are slightly nonsensical. <laughs> People now saying that the Labour Party will never win another election. And they've the been proved the, wrong in four and a half years' time. In the same way when the Tories were never going to win again in the 1990s and yeah. Labour were never going to win again in the 1980s. But what I think we successfully identified, things were shifting in the body politic. What Tony Blair talked about is that the bits of the kaleidoscope were up in the air and they were going to land somewhere. And my view of the last few years is that ultimately the Conservative Party, more than the Brexit Party, more than the Labour Party, was able to adapt to where those bits were likely to land and were able to go and win votes where they were landing and that's the story of it. Had Farage not done so well in those European elections the Tory party wouldn't perhaps have got the rocket up its behind that it did and Boris Johnson won I think uh, in large part because they did fear that obliteration was on its way. He and Dominic Cummings then relentlessly pursued those voters and they got their reward in December. And in part because at no point really in the last three and a half years did Labour ever get a handle on really what their position was or how they were going to address it. At the morning after the result, Jeremy Corbyn rushed onto the TV, declared that Article 50 must be now triggered, something that even the Tories didn't do for almost a year. And at that point, his front bench were mounting a coup against him. It feels like there's so much has happened in yeah. the last 24 hours. Oh, a Labour Party the coup Labour... against the leader now. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a nib. It's page 96. <coughs> Do put, yeah, just put a line in to say that the Labour Party is about to tear itself in half. Yeah. Possibly permanently. Yeah, it's going to be one exposed, par in the splash on Having Sunday. being exposed totally in its heartlands. Yeah. It's a bit longer than we thought. So at that point, we thought the coup was happening to get rid of Jeremy Corbyn. It's, you know, he clung on for quite a bit longer. But the coup was very effective. It's one of the most effective coups I've ever seen in British politics. I mean, they got... You know, what was it, 70-odd front benches to resign, and then I think 172 of his MPs said that he wasn't fit to be Prime Minister, and he just went, well, I don't care, uh, I've got, uh, got the membership. So, in a sense, we were right about the analysis. In the three years that ensued, Labour didn't really get a grip on things. Were you they... surprised the way he clung on? I wasn't surprised that he was able to sort of brazen it out. What the referendum did was it threw up the normal rules of politics and turned them on their head. Um and we saw that in, in a whole range of ways, but particularly in the Labour Party. You know, in any conventional world, if three quarters of your MPs don't support you, you would feel compelled to stand down. We're just like embarrassed. Yeah, <laughs> it barely seemed embarrassed, to be honest. The Corbyn worldview was, you know, if we triumph, it is because we triumph. And if we fail or are facing, you know, uh, the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, it's because our enemies are wicked. Now, this was simply evidence of the scale of wickedness in the Parliamentary Labour Party. So he clung on, um, but there was always this tension between a leader who was basically for 30 years uh, anti-European um, and a party that was at its most vociferously pro-European. I think there was a statistic that something like 20 of the 25 most leave seats in the country were Labour and 20 of the 25 most remain seats in the country were Labour. And they never resolved how to keep both of those inside the tent. And they tried constantly to keep them both inside the tent. They perhaps would have been better off pursuing one or other with proper vigour. In a way, because in 2017 they pursued constructive ambiguity and just talked about other things. And they got away with that. Yeah, but they got away with it for a number of reasons which I don't think they understood at the time. You know, first amongst which was 
because they think the Tories are always wicked and useless, to see a Prime Minister being quite so useless and with a policy uh, in the dementia tax that in 2017 that really did sink the Conservative Party in a way that no other single policy has sunk another political party in my adult lifetime. I don't think they understood quite how important that was to their own success, because from the Labour point of view, the Corbyn worldview was, we've got all these tremendous policies, everybody loves them, everybody loves Jeremy Corbyn, and of course the Tories are wicked and useless. They didn't understand how historically useless Theresa May was at that point. And also, crucially, the uselessness coupled with a series of opinion polls which still pointed to Theresa May getting a massive majority, and so people bought into the idea that Theresa May was going to end up as Prime Minister anyway, but it'd be quite nice to have a local Labour MP here or maybe curtail the majority overall because she doesn't appear to be very good. Yeah, lots of Labour MPs were quite credi- who really didn't like Jeremy Corbyn and frankly didn't think he should be Prime Minister were quite credibly able to march to their doorstep and say, he's not going to be Prime Minister, vote for me, uh, I'm a good influence, I need my seat. Uh, and people bought that. And uh, in 2019, the polling suggests that they really didn't. And we had the extraordinary spectacle of people who were knocking on doors and saying, vote Labour in 2017, who was saying, I'm afraid actually you should vote Conservative this time around. There's one more clip on Labour that I want to play you, just because it sounded horribly familiar. Well, and again, you listen to every Labour politician over the last 12 hours as well. Every single one of them says, yes, we must listen. Yes, we haven't listened enough to these people. It's a wake-up call. And then you sort of ask them, well, what are you going to do about it? And it's like, well, we can't obviously, you know, close the borders or do anything like this. And there's just no intellectual thought been going on on this issue on the left for properly for you know 20 years so almost four years on from the Brexit campaign starting Labour still hasn't done any of that thinking has it no and it's deja vu all over again if you listen to the people in the Labour leadership contest I mean Lisa Nandy is perceived to be this sort of interesting combination of northern towns and a bit moderate uh, whilst also sort of clinging on to some of the uh, soft left policies she was talking about free movement the other day um, and what a good idea it is. Well, if that's the way to win back those northern towns, I'm a Dutchman. And, you know, the same is true of some of the other candidates. They are still find it very difficult to engage on immigration. And if you listen to what they're saying about why they lost the general election, the most disastrous result in 80-odd years came in. And they all said, well, we must listen, we must learn. It's a wake-up call. It's a wake-up call. And now they've produced a report saying, well, it's all down to Brexit. Jeremy Corbyn was quite popular. The policies were all very popular. And it's like... You know, when are they going to read the polling? For me, I just don't know why they just don't stop talking about Brexit. When they get asked the question, where are you on Brexit? They should just say, Brexit is happening. Whether we like it or not, there's not going to be an election for four or five years. Most of the people in the country are sick of talking about it. I want to get on and talk about the other stuff and about the future and all that. But instead, they keep disappearing down this rabbit hole of, will you still remain or leave? Or Sounds uh, like you should run for the Labour leadership, Matthew. <laughs> I'm not sure. I'm not sure we'd quite mesh. Um, we've still got loads to talk about yet, Tim, including Scotland, the economy, and why that second referendum never happened. All that coming up after the break. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. 
Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Let's quickly talk about Scotland because that was a big thing as soon as the result was announced and another familiar voice emerged. So Nicola Sturgeon has spotted an opportunity there. Good She's Lord. now come out and said these is quite obviously the conditions that we need, that she needs to call a, a second referendum on Scottish independence. Well, you do surprise me, Matthew. I mean, this is the perfect result for the SNP. Alex Salmon was able to sit on the telly last night going, look at us, we've got 70% for, for Remain in Scotland. Look at you terrible English people. But Nicola Stone has spent the last three and a half years asking again and again and again for the second referendum. Well, yeah, she was rather derailed by the 2017 election where she lost a load of seats and, and lost a bit of momentum for that argument. But that argument is back with a vengeance now. SNP have returned to controlling most of the uh, Westminster seats in Scotland. One of the big themes of the next two years is going to be Sturgeon demanding a referendum and trying to win those Holyrood elections in 2021 on a platform of we must have a referendum, which will greatly strengthen her hand if that happens, which is why I think you'll see Boris Johnson and the rest of the government launch a big sort of push on the union in the next few weeks. They want to get up there and get stuck in and fight to try and uh, stop her having that mandate. And I think what's happened is that Brexit has made it more likely that there will be a referendum. Arguably, it's made it slightly less likely that the SNP would win it because they're going to be in a more difficult position of having to argue, let's go off, join the euro. And frankly, Brussels, if you speak to people over there in the Commission, they don't really want an independent Scotland uh, joining the EU. That creates all sorts of problems with Catalonia and uh, parts of the Balkans and all the rest of it. It gets devilishly complicated quite quickly. And in practical terms, the SNP making the case for independence. If you're a person in Scotland, it's possible you might look at what's happened over the last three years and think, it turns out leaving a long-standing political and economic union is quite complicated. And maybe we are better off where we are, regardless of, you know, if you could throw a switch and be out, that's one thing. But the process of leaving is a, is a complicated mess. I think there are a whole bunch of people in London who did the negotiations with Brussels as the, the little country up against the big beast would be quite looking forward to being the big beast up against the little country, giving Edinburgh as hard a time as Brussels gave London. And there's probably quite a few people in Edinburgh that grasp that. It would be a messy situation. And if we thought the Northern Ireland border problem was complicated, the Scottish border problem would be just as much, if not more so. Uh, Yeah, the the Scottish border is not at Hadrian's Wall, so it's going to get complicated. Uh, One thing we did uh, back on that morning was we were taking questions on Facebook because we were very modern back then. Ashley says, are we going to have another recession? So it was a big question. Back then we talked a lot about Boris Johnson's Nike tick, that we'd have a little dip and then the economy would soar, was how Boris Johnson saw it. So, so far at least, neither has happened. It's more like a bit of string that's been laid down (laughs) in a slightly wobbly fashion. Um... He would argue that we're still in the sort of uh, holding in the, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the curve of the tick, and that it hasn't yet taken off yet. You know, let's be frank. Most of the economic predictions on both sides were bunk. What George Osborne said was going to happen did not happen, and what the Brexiteers claimed might happen has not happened. Uh, there is some 
uh, recent analysis that says we are poised for a higher growth than the rest of the the eurozone we're not talking sort not of very much we're more. not talking uh, exit velocity growth no. i don't think so but do you think the fact that we haven't been plunged into the abyss of a recession forced to eat our cats and dogs is what hampered the opponents of brexit i think that's one of the things that did it's very difficult to prove a counterfactual it, you know once we've left you may be able to look back in 30 years and say our trend growth rate was lower and that GDP is X percent smaller than it might have been. But what matters is what people feel. And so far, they haven't felt anything that has caused most of the people who voted to leave to change their minds. And more importantly, it's not been bad enough for uh, Remainers, uh, sort of soft Remainers, to get upset about it. There has always been, throughout the last three years, been a decent chunk of the population that voted to remain, but thinks that the vote should be respected, thinks it should be done, uh, and ultimately those people have prevailed. Right back then on that morning after, we both agreed, I think, that there wouldn't be a second referendum. The EU made that pretty clear. They just wanted to get on and get us out. So they're effectively saying, you're not going to get any extra deal. There won't be a second referendum. We're not going to chuck more concessions at you like we used to do with other countries. You are too big and we just don't want the psychodrama. So if you could please you know, get out and close the door behind you, that would be splendid. It was sort of amazing, really, that the, the People's Vote campaign kept going as a thing, despite all of the evidence suggesting that it was never going to happen. Yeah, I mean, they ran quite a good campaign until they fell apart in uh, <laughs> what can only be described as spectacularly comedic fashion. One of the chapters of my upcoming book, which I'm most looking forward to writing. <laughs> but... You know, um, I don't think it was inevitable that they weren't going to win, Had but the sensible people in the campaign always knew that it had to be the last resort. Every other avenue had to be exhausted. And if Boris Johnson had failed to get a deal, it is entirely possible that Parliament might have got together to impose a referendum. The biggest problem in that, of course, was that the slightly pie-in-the-sky plan that would have had to work would have been to impose a new government the opposition was never prepared to support Jeremy Corbyn and the Labour Party was never prepared to let it be anybody else. And so Corbyn's performance, not just on Brexit, but on a range of other things, made it impossible for Brexit to turn out differently because Joe Swinson and the Lib Dems were not prepared to, to prop him up. And without that, it was very difficult to see there being a referendum in a situation where Boris Johnson had a deal. If he hadn't had a deal, things might have been different. But by that point, they were tearing each other limb from limb in that campaign. It was also unclear that if we did get another referendum, given that the Remain campaign, which lost last time, would have been shorn of Tory Remainers, David Cameron and Craig Oliver and all those people who ran it, rendering it even more at a loss than it was before. Well, I remember speaking to someone who was involved at the top of the Remain campaign about six months ago, who sort of said to me, we still have not found emotional language to talk to the British public about this issue. We still do not have a good slogan, and I have no idea who would lead the campaign. So even if they'd managed to get a vote through in the Commons and then somehow kept a sort of caretaker government on the road for enough months to get a question and get a bill passed, I am as sure of this as I can be about anything that hasn't happened, that the Leave campaign would have won it again. I spent a good 10 minutes with someone this week trying to remember what the Remain campaign was called. Well, Stuart Rose, who uh, was the chairman of it, couldn't remember what it was called on the day it launched. So <laughs> Stronger you know, stronger Britain in a, in a stronger, bigger, bigger, better... Remain in Britain, I think, was one of his <laughs> efforts. Um, and, you know, vote, you know and, and had Boris Johnson failed to get his deal, second referendum being fought through, get Brexit done or tell them again versus, oh, it's still rubbish, isn't it? 
Anyone would think three-word slogans with an action in them are quite effective. Yeah. Um, and Dominic Cummings has had two of those. Yeah. Better campaigners would have run the Leave campaign. We know who the front men would have been. They'd have had a bit of an argument, but Boris Johnson and Nigel Farage would both have uh, had a role to play. And given what happened in the general election, I find it hard to believe that they wouldn't have won. And as I say, I think that there's a decent chunk of people who voted Remain in 2016 who would have voted for, uh, Leave in 2020, if that's when it had been. And essentially they did, but by voting for the Tories in the 2019 election. Exactly. You, you've just touched on it there. Basically, back in 2016, our initial thought that Boris Johnson was going to be the more likely Prime Minister. But you put your finger on something that did eventually come to pass. And a lot of people have been out on the road with him and seen the, you know, the frankly astonishing have. effect that he has. And, yeah, you know, yeah. you and I both know there's no other politician in Britain who comes close to that. Yeah. And as long as the opinion polls tell Tory MPs that this guy is in play. And don't forget, he has wooed, you know, these same working class voters. And if you're yeah. looking for a Tory leader who can appeal beyond the existing gene pool of the Conservative Party, he's got more chance of doing that than Theresa May. So we got there in the end. Um, it took us slightly longer than we thought. The Tories wooed the working class voters in the north. Labour got rid of Jeremy Corbyn and now we've got Brexit done. The process of the last three years has been Boris Johnson morphing from one product to another. He began life as Heineken, reaching the parts other politicians don't uh, reach. Then he became Mr Marmite for three years, loved and hated in equal measure, and in the end he was back to being the Heineken candidate. That's why we're where we are. Just before we wind up, Tim... Is there anything that you know now about what played out over the last three and a half years that you wish you'd known back in 2016? Well, I wish I'd known how little sleep we were all going to get, for starters. <laughs> but P- I th- Pacing ourselves would have been key. Yeah, but I think the most important thing that we didn't have a clue about was the importance of Northern Ireland. And as you have kindly pointed out, I've wrote two books about all of this. And only in the last 50 pages of the second book did Northern Ireland even get a look in. It came up during the campaign briefly when... John Major and Tony Blair went over there and said, well, this could be a really big problem. And I think broadly they were ridiculed for that. And everybody said, what do you mean? Well, is a war going to start again over there? The troubles come back. And it became clearer as we reached the early part of 2019. And that was precisely the, the kind of warnings that ministers were getting that if hard borders were imposed. I, you know, I don't think the civil servants, I don't think the politicians had a clue. Uh, I think the EU and the Irish spotted a chance. And, and ultimately, the way this was resolved for Boris Johnson was by coming up with a solution of sorts for that issue. It became the crux on which the whole thing turned. And I don't think uh, there was much of that in the campaign and, and, and for a long time afterwards. Made more complicated, I suppose, by when Theresa May lost a majority and was then forced to rely on the DUP over-complicated and already complicated Northern Ireland picture. Yeah, exactly. And the DUP became the sort of pivot point for this whole story for a, you know, a period of pushing two years. We suddenly all had to start to get to know the DUP and what they thought and what they wanted. Well, what they mostly wanted was to say no and have more money. And for you know, pushing two years, they got away with that. I think there's now an argument of all the people who have made catastrophic strategic errors in this process, and we could list a great many of them. I think the DUP may be regretting more than uh, anybody else not uh, getting behind an earlier form of this deal. And just finally, you mentioned your books. You've already written two books on this saga. Is the third part the end of it? It's the last part that I will be writing. (laughs) (laughs) There are lots of very brilliant up-and-coming young journalists who can write about the trade deal in all its meticulous glory. My book will end at 11pm on Friday, January the 31st. And do you think 
we will ever see a period like this in politics again. You, I hope not. <laughs> you've been in the lobby... I John, started just before the 2001 elections. So OK, so you been, you're much older than me. I joined just after the 2005 election. But I remember... I mean, you probably had the same thing. Veterans of the 90s telling us, oh, you missed all the good stuff. That was when it was the good. The John Major government, amazing, watching that fall the late Maastricht. Those late-night votes on Europe, yep. the Tory government falling apart, the Labour Party on the rise... Huge shock, landslide victories. We'll never see the like of it again. Yeah, and I remember being quite jealous of that because the first seven years I had in the lobby was <laughs> Blair Brown, Brown Blair. Oh, this bloke says you're terrible. Oh, well, he's terrible. And on and on it went. Every David Cameron's not got a tie on. David Cameron's cycling with his shoes in a yeah, well, car. The coalition was quite interesting, wasn't it? But I think, you know, and then I had a spell in the States covering Obama's first election victory, which I'll be honest, I thought was about as good as it was going to get. And I thought for a single night, the thing that, uh, was most dramatic was the 2000 US election. I was there for that as well when Bush and Gore swapped leadership of the free world uh, over the space of about two and a half hours. Um, frankly, none of that has anything on what's happened over the last three years. Referendum night, all the general election results, which were a slight surprise. And I was talking the other day to Andy Grice, who is a former political editor of the Sunday Times, and he was around for all that John Major stuff. And he said this was much better. <laughs> and who am I to disagree with him? And so looking back, if you'd previously thought it was Obama winning, what do you think is the single biggest moment? There are so many. I mean, I think the single most humanly dramatic moment was standing at Theresa May's launch, reading Michael Gove's email about why he wasn't supporting Boris Johnson. I think... Theresa May saying nothing has changed and imploding her general election campaign was the single most dramatic thing I've seen in a general election. And I think as a sort of end point to this whole saga, that two seconds after 10 o'clock when the exit poll came in and there's a video from Tory central office, there's a moment of utter stillness like a bomb has gone off. Bong. The graphic flashes up and the whole place just, just erupts. erupts. If you pair that with Sunderland from 2016 as a kind of moment of surprising sort of energetic release as the sort of bookends of this, I think you don't go too far wrong. Bookends between which people can put three books? three. Well, hopefully, yes, yes. The third one will be out in the summer <laughs> when it's written. Uh, thank you for enjoying it with us over the last three and a half years. God bless you. Who knows what comes next? Tim Shipman, it's been an absolute joy. Re- reliving it all, almost like counselling or therapy or something. The British people have voted to leave the European Union. I love this country and I feel honoured to have served it. I have concluded that person cannot be me. I am honoured and humbled to have been chosen. Brexit means Brexit. But if you believe you're a citizen of the world, you're a citizen of nowhere. You're sick of hearing about Brexit. I'm sick of talking about Brexit. We agreed that the government should call a general election. Nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. Some of us might have tried to tell you Theresa May wasn't very good, but we don't like to talk about it. This is not what we expected. We've got a hung parliament. But sufficient progress has now been made. Boris Johnson has quit the government, follows David Davis. What the hell is going on? I firmly believe that the draft withdrawal agreement was the best that could be negotiated. Brexit is boring. Today marks the culmination of our exit negotiations with the EU. 
There will now be a vote of confidence in my leadership of the Conservative Party. I will contest that vote with everything I've got. Welcome to the most extraordinary day in British politics since, well, the last extraordinary day in British politics. The Parliamentary Party does have confidence. Yeah. On a night when something genuinely historic has happened. The nose to the left, 432. Ah. Tonight's vote is the greatest defeat for a government since the 1920s. The nose to the left, 391. So the nose have it, the nose have it. I profoundly regret the decision that this House has taken. Theresa May goes down to a humiliating defeat. The nose to the left, 344. Mr Speaker, I fear we are reaching the limits of this process in this House. Not for the first time. We're asking, what the hell is going on? Longer extension would oblige the United Kingdom to hold elections to the European Parliament. This is the House of Commons. Situation grim and worsening. Big win for the Brexit Party, that's very clear. A terrible night for the Conservative Party. But with enormous and enduring gratitude to have had the opportunity to serve the country I love. Boris Johnson is elected. Well, I look at you this morning and I ask myself, do you look daunted? This is not normal. The Prime Minister's advice to Her Majesty was unlawful. This deal uh, represents uh, a very good deal. Happy Christmas election, Britain. Tory gains almost everywhere. This election means that getting Brexit done is now the unarguable decision of the British people. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.